The way that we behave, the way that we attach ourselves or bond with another person is how we learned about bonding and attachment as a child. And because attachment is a bond and the bond is created in our brains, it's difficult to undo those bonds without learning new tools and new habits that you can form to have more secure relationships with ourselves and with the people that we surround ourselves with. Today, I'm talking nerdy with Ashley Weller on the science and psychology of attachment styles. Your attachment style is one of the most important, if not the most important factor in how you show up and sustain relationships. Today, we're delving into where they come from in terms of formative childhood and relational experiences, how they influence your relationship behaviors as an adult, and how you can change them. If you are finding yourself in unhealthy or unhelpful relationship patterns, Ashley and I are also going to be talking about how you can become increasingly secure. So I wanted to delve into this topic with Ashley because romantic relationships were one of the areas of my life that I struggled with the most. And it wasn't until I learned more about attachment styles and was able to identify some of my own insecure and anxious patterns of behavior that I was able to ultimately take action and change them. Ashley Weller is a health psychology and human sexuality professor. She hosts a sex positive show called What's Your Position? It's an amazing podcast that I personally listen to that focuses on health, wellness, relationships, mental health, and all things sex. Sex and sex positivity are discussed at length in this episode. So this is your little forewarning in case you're tuning in around sensitive and young ears that those are going to be topics that we cover in depth. In addition to being an engaging and delightful podcast host, Ashley also has her master's in health psychology and has been lecturing about sex and sexuality since 2013. I'm so happy to be on this podcast. I am, I feel like a very big, fat, full circle moment has just taken place. <laughs> the universe is right again. I, I'm just so proud of you for starting a podcast and following your dream and talking to people about all the amazing things that that you are and do. And so I'm just so excited to be a guest. Thanks for asking to have me. My pleasure. It's so interesting as I was preparing myself for this episode, I was thinking back on just our relationship in general and how one directional sometimes the level of vulnerability is on on podcasts. And I was thinking back on. So for those of you that haven't listened to What's Your Position yet, that's Ashley's podcast. It's amazing. I personally love listening to it, but I also had the great privilege of being able to be interviewed on it. And I was thinking back on that episode, which you should all definitely listen to, and thinking about how how little I actually know about you and your backstory and what brought you to the work that you're doing today. So I think that we should start there just with how you came to be a sex educator. Well, um, it is odd to be on this side of the questioning, I will say. (laughs) I'm used to giving the questions, not answering them. I was raised in Seattle in an extremely conservative, fundamentalist, religious household. Um, And sex was not something that we talked about. And it was not something that was allowed to be talked about. There was a lot of shame surrounding sex, a lot of guilt, and a lot of purity culture that was being sort of forced down my throat in church and at school. Um, I wasn't allowed to take health class, so I was very undereducated when it came to the female body, menstruation, relationships. I didn't have a very good role model with relationships. My mother's been married and divorced five times, so (laughs) relationships were not her forte, or maybe they were. (laughs) I don't know how you want to look at it, but I just, I really wanted to get more information. I'm a very hungry knowledge hungry person. I love reading. I love taking on new information. I love being educated by people and I love sharing what I learn with other people. And to be told you can't take a health class because you might hear the word sex is very frustrating, especially because my friends would all talk about it afterwards. And here I was ostracized, not knowing anything they were talking about. And I graduated high school and immediately moved to California. It was always my dream to live at the beach. So I moved to California and started college classes and took a health class just because it was one of the GEs that was offered. And I was like, I'm an adult. I can do what I want. (laughs) I'm going to take this class that I was told I could never take. Suckers. Um, I also took an anthropology, an evolutionary anthropology class, which would have really pissed my dad off. Told me that God put dinosaur bones in the ground so that humans would ask questions. 
at the extent of evolution that I got taught. So you can, and I got told that I would get pregnant if I kissed somebody. So that was like my education growing up. And so I took this health class and my mind was blown. Um, I learned why I had a period at the age of 18. I learned how people got pregnant at the age of 18. And I was so fascinated by this information that seemed so basic and seemed so relevant and so inherent within ourselves because it's just our bodies. These are just the things that we are walking around. There's a sack of skin with all this computer going on that you don't even fucking know about. And I'm like, I was hungry. I couldn't get enough. So I took eight human sexuality classes over the course of my undergrad. Anytime it would count towards a credit, I took it. And I started doing lectures for a nonprofit called AIDS Services Foundation. My grandmother started that foundation in the 80s when the AIDS crisis was at its peak. And she was on the board for a very long time. And I just started volunteering in their education department, talking about HIV and prevention. And I realized that public speaking was my passion when I started teaching this HIV course. And I, I went to a high school um, locally here in Fullerton. And the teacher said, hey, that was an excellent lecture. Do you want to do my entire sexuality section for my my teenagers? Because I don't want to do it. And I, it's a summer school and it's, I'm a health teacher, but I don't want to do the part about sex. And I was like, OK. And I never said no to anyone who asked me to public speak. I've never said no, because it's the only way that I felt I could get myself into a position that I could be seen and heard and get the message out about sex and, and prevention and safety. So I started doing this class called SHAPE, S-T-I-H-I-V, uh, Awareness Prevention Education. And I made up this nonprofit class and I, I reached out to every junior high and high school. I reached out to youth shelters. I reached out to military schools. I reached out to any program that was substance abuse based. And I said, I have a free STI prevention class that takes an hour and a half. Are you interested? And I eventually over the course, I did this program for 10 years and I spoke to over 10,000 students in the Orange County area by speaking to these different locations, youth shelters, runaway shelters, substance abuse facilities, high schools, junior highs, colleges. And I just absolutely could not get enough of it. And every time I would do these, I, would, I was a waitress um, for a really long time. And I would do these lectures. I would go to high schools and do all five class periods of one health class. And I would speak for five hours straight and then go for free and then go work as a waitress or go to school that then on the days I wasn't working. Um, and I did that for 10 years. I volunteered and just went anywhere I could go. And one of the teachers at Chapman University, Dave, who was your teacher, <laughs> had mentioned to me the first time I spoke at Chapman, he said, you're really great speaker. You're very engaging and the, the kids really like you. And I throw candy. Um, so that's probably part of the reason that they like me is because positive psychology and positive reinforcement, when you get an answer right, you get candy. So you're more likely to participate. Um, so I didn't believe him. I was like, nah, it's just the candy. <laughs> it's, it's not me. He's like, you're talking about chlamydia and these people are paying the attention. Like, I think it's you. I was like, all right, maybe it's me. And he told me, if you get your master's, I'll hire you. If you get your master's, I'll, I'll let you teach at Chapman. And I was like, <laughs> bet. So I went and got my master's and, uh, and then he hired me that next semester um, to be a human sexuality professor. Sadly, that um, semester was fall of 2020. And I don't know if you remember this, Alex, but there was like this really crazy thing that happened in 2020. And we all got locked down and <laughs> there was no college. So um, and because I had all these classes prepped, I was going to be a teacher. I was going to be a professor in the fall. And I was prepping my classes and my coursework and my syllabus and I was so excited to finally be doing what I always had wanted to do, which was to speak publicly about not just STI prevention, not just pregnancy prevention, but I get to tell people about their bodies, about pleasure, about masturbation, about the psychological benefits of sex, about pornography, about cultural history surrounding sex, global sex practices. I was fucking stoked. And then COVID was like, nah, bitch, you don't get to do anything. And I was like, wait, I actually have an idea. Hold my beer. And I talked to my cousin and I was like, what if we did a podcast instead while we're waiting? We have nothing else to do. We're at home. Why don't we just do a podcast about what I would be talking about in class? And so I started this podcast with just me and my cousin. We just talk about whatever I wanted. And then some of my friends started coming on and talking about their experiences with fatherhood, their experiences getting abortions, their experiences with masturbation or with menstruation or 
Um, we talked about incels. We've talked about BDSM. That literally we run the gamut of of topics on sex. And once I started teaching, I didn't want to stop the podcast because they fill two different roles for me. I love the one on one conversations with students, and I love being there to help them with research and their papers and watching them turn into bright, wonderful humans. I love being the first person to ever teach someone where their clitoris is. <laughs> Every semester, someone's like, I didn't know where my clitoris was until Professor Weller told me. And I'm like, yes. Uh, it's my favorite. And then I also love the idea of interviewing doctors and interviewing neuroscience scientists. And I love talking to um, strangers about their experience with sugaring. I mean, I literally love talking to people and I, I talk at students. They answer questions, but I feel like when I have these conversations about sex, I'm talking with someone and I'm learning from my guests. And I I think that I really started this from a place of I didn't know the answer and I couldn't stand that. And so I took all these health classes to answer all my questions and I still had questions and I needed more answers. And talking to students and having them ask me questions that I don't know the answer to and then that makes me go research something else and learning that education was really my passion and it was such a relief to to find the thing that makes your soul happy. And every day that I teach and every day that I do a podcast, I have more energy and feel more myself than anything else that I do. That is incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. I find you to be such an interesting and fascinating human being. <laughs> and I also have more questions now. So I know that, you know, you and I have both talked about there's a difference between knowing something conceptually and knowing something experientially. So I'm curious for you, as you were accumulating all this knowledge in your health classes, when you started going to school, how did your personal relationship start to change as you were integrating this information? So at first, I when I started learning about the human body and the the fact that the clitoris is the only part of the human body that's sole purpose is for pleasure, it has no other purpose whatsoever. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. And I found that out at a very young age. I recognized there was something happy happening downstairs. I had been a sexual person my whole life. And I just, I enjoy pleasure and masturbation is wonderful. And I just never talked to anyone about it. And then I took a class that said, hey, this is why we do that. And it's good for you. <laughs> like, helps you sleep, reduces stress, helps your immune system. Like there's ridiculous benefits to masturbation. And I became more aware that what I was doing wasn't sinful. And when I had that awareness, it alleviated years and mountains of shame and guilt for me. So I had a better relationship with myself. I then also started having more sexual relationships with other people without feeling the need to marry them, which is something I was taught growing up. So learning that relationships can happen, relationships are a normal part of a human being's life and that we can be intimate with people without being their wife forever. And so I began having more intimate relationships with people and exploring my body and exploring my sexuality. And it was just a really amazing feeling. Unfortunately, it did not help my long-term romantic relationships until I met my now husband. I dated some pretty shitty people and I stopped going to school because one of them said, what do you need to go to school for? You're just going to have my kids. And so I stopped going to school for a little while. I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. Yeah, he named them too. He wasn't even going to let me name them. I don't even want kids. And it was awful. And so when I met Kevin, he asked why I wasn't in school. And that's my husband. And he, um, he's like, yeah, you should go back to school and you should take this class that I took at Orange Coast College. It's a human sexuality class. And I was like, oh, my God, I haven't taken one of those in a long time. And I took this class, Professor Hernando Chavez, and he blew my fucking mind wide the fuck open. He he changed everything about what I knew about sex. He had for an extra credit project, he had us draw our vulvas with pencil and charcoal. I'm not an artist. And when I was done drawing it, it looked like a heart. And I was like, this is something innate. This is deeper. Like this, the the love that I have for the human body goes way deeper than I realized. But once I took that class with Hernando Chavez at Orange Coast College, it, it changed who I was as a person and changed how I looked at sex. I bought my first vibrator when I was 24. 
And I give vibrators out in classes now as prizes <laughs> because we should all have one. <laughs> I give out little mini bullets. <laughs> that is amazing. It changed my relationship with myself um, before it changed my relationship with other people, for sure. That is absolutely incredible. And so much of what you just shared, I think, is so it's so on brand with all of the conversations that I've had here at Talk Nerdy to Me, which is that the human body and the human nervous system, because our sex, our sexuality, our pleasure, it's all a function of nervous system. It's a function of nerve endings and the way that those connect with our brain and our spinal cord. And it is absolutely mind-blowing what we're capable of and that we're capable of feeling so much and feeling so much pleasure. Okay, so I want to I want to pivot a little bit because I know that we had originally kind of planned on talking a bit more about attachment styles. And I also know that like your zone of genius, what you love to speak on is sex. So we can definitely marry the two and talk about attachment styles and sex. But for anybody who's listening right now who might be like, what the fuck is an attachment style and why is this important for me to know about? Can we begin there? Because this is a conversation that I I love having with you. <laughs> Absolutely. So attachment styles are the deep and emotional and enduring bonds that are strung together by a series of life events. So when we are attached to someone, um, we have a bond between us and that person. And this person can be a friend. This person can be a family member. And this person can be romantically involved with you. But it doesn't always necessarily equal romantic, right? It, or, or sexual. It can be friendship. It can be anything. The way that we behave, the way that we attach ourselves or bond with another person is how we learned about bonding and attachment as a child. So attachment theory, which is where this all lives, was developed by a man named John Bowlby. And he was a doctor who in the late 1930s worked with children who had emotional disturbances, um, children who acted out, children who maybe were on the naughty list, children who had some emotional problems. And what he found was that there was a lot of consistency when he met a child who had specific behaviors and then also looked at the guardians in that child's life and maybe the inconsistent patterns um, that those guardians were showing. So, for example, responding to a baby's cries, responding when a baby is upset, being there for any sort of caretaker responsibilities like food, shelter, basic human needs like changing a diaper. When we don't get the responses that uh, an infant or a toddler needs, we have different ways of forming attachment around those bonds. And when a caretaker, and I don't use the word parent because not everyone is raised by their parents, but when I say caretaker, know that I mean the person who was there in, in your formative years. So between the ages of about nine months up until about four years old is when those attachment styles are going to formulate for the, for the first time. Um, and these attachment styles are straight from how we are treated as children. So, for example, if you were ignored as a child or if your parent was inconsistent. So sometimes when you cried, they came to help you. Sometimes when you cried, they yelled at you. Sometimes when you cried, they ignored you. Sometimes when you cried, they laughed at you. If you didn't have a consistent caretaker to help you when you are in need, you may form these insecure attachment styles versus a secure attachment style. So interesting. So something that I want to point out in what you just said is that when we talk about theories within the scientific and psychological community, they're not the same as theories that like I, Alex Nashton, may have that talk nerdy to me is the best podcast on the internet. Like when we talk about scientific theories, we're talking about these ideas and concepts that have only been supported by further scientific and psychological research. And there really has yet to be evidence disputing it or not supporting it. So things like gravity, like gravity is a theory. Newton's theory is real. Yes. Yes. But we call them theories. And so attachment is a theory as well. But it's not just like this elusive, ethereal thing. 
this is pretty much concrete. We can say always add. We can always add to theories. We can also always expand upon theories and um, create new facets into theories. They just did this actually with attachment theory. There was a lot of research done in the 60s to support this. They actually do numerous experiments. One's called the stranger experiment. Um, and that experiment was done in the 60s to prove attachment theory. And it did. Um, there was another experiment done in the 90s. The name is escaping me. But people continuously experiment on theories to make sure that they stand the test of time. Because there are some theories that can actually fade away or theories that are only um, because of the certain cultural effects that are happening at that time. Um, we're not going to see, you know, COVID theory in 20 years. Like we might see people who still have it, but it may not be relevant in 20 years when there is no more COVID or whatever. But attachment theory was just recently re reproved in, I think it was 2014 or 2016. And they actually went into a bit more detail about um, some myths surrounding attachment style that a lot of people have really glommed onto. The number one biggest myth is that attachment styles don't change, that you have an attachment style. Um, and that's the only one that you have. You ne if you have an anxious attachment style, you'll never have avoidant attachment style. And that's actually not true. They actually see that people's attachment style, A, changes throughout their life, and B, is not just formulated by the early adults and early caretakers in our lives, but we actually have our attachment styles either reconfirmed or switched by the very first relationships we form. So the first friend you ever had or the first romantic partner you ever had can also frame your attachment style just as significantly as those early year caretakers. So that's a couple of newer um, additions to attachment theory. But yeah, absolutely. These theories aren't aren't just like like the love languages that that's not based in science, right? We talk about love languages. We talk about the four. I talk about the four agreements all the time. Those aren't scientifically based. I just think that they're a beautiful framework to live your life. The attachment theory is based in science, based in research and has been proven time and time again. Yes. I just wanted to make sure that that was clear to listeners. So you mentioned anxious, you mentioned avoidant. What are the actual attachment styles? So we'll start with the easy one, secure attachment. Um, and no one is 100% secure, even if you grew up in a very loving household and you had great parents. And I know a lot of people are like, my parents loved me. Why do I have an anxious attachment style? And it, it, like I said, it's formulated by a lot of different areas. But about 50 to 55 percent of the population has what we would classify as a secure attachment. A couple of notable sort of hallmarks of someone with secure attachment is appreciating their own self-worth, appreciating boundaries, comfortability in expressing their needs, their feelings, satisfaction in being around other people, satisfaction from speaking to your partner. Um, you're not super anxious when you're away from the people that you love. Um, you're comfortable being by yourself. You're happy for other people. Um, you're not just seeking out joy for yourself, but you actually truly enjoy witnessing joy in your partner or in your other relationships. And when you are faced with disappointment, breakups, setbacks, arguments, misfortune somehow, um, you're resilient and you're able to bounce back because you have good emotional regulation. Um, so that's, that's the characteristics of someone in a secure attachment. It doesn't necessarily mean that you can take for granted that you are secure because, like I said, it is on a spectrum and it fluctuates from time to time based on your needs. You might be a secure attached person, but maybe you had a difficult day at work and you are feeling a bit anxious and you need to come home and make sure that you are with someone who understands that you're not secure every single day. You're not 100 percent secure. So just being aware of that. The next one is anxious attachment. It's also sometimes called ambivalent attachment. You might be embarrassed about how clingy you feel. You might feel like you constantly need attention. <laughs> you may want to be in a relationship because you crave these feelings of closeness with another person, but you never really can trust that other person is going to stay or stick around. You may have a difficult time accepting someone's boundaries. You may be a boundary breaker. You may view the space and that the boundaries set as a threat and not necessarily as something that's important for that other person. Uh, it's mildly selfish. You might find that boundaries provoke anger or fear in you. A lot of your self-worth rests on how you feel you're being treated in your relationships. So not necessarily how you're treating yourself, but how the people in your relationships are treating you. Um, you might feel jealous, 
um, or use manipulation or guilt behaviors to control your partner. And you are someone who probably needs consistent reassurance that your partner loves you. Basically, attachment and anxious attachment style is in their childhood interactions with their parent, especially during like a stranger situation. That child may have not known which person to go to, the mother or the stranger. The the mother is what they classified it back in the 60s. But the caregiver is is so erratic in the way that they show love and the way that they show attention, that the anxious attachment style person doesn't ever really trust anyone's reaction or anyone's words because they never knew that trust was a thing they could have with their caregiver. Avoidant attachment style. This is also considered a a dismissive attachment style. Find it difficult to tolerate emotional um, intimacy. They value independence and freedom, which is nice, but they value it to a point where they're uncomfortable by intimacy or closeness in any friendships or relationships. They don't feel that they need to care for anyone but themselves, so they don't necessarily even want to be in a relationship because that feels like a burden. The more someone tries to get close to you or the needier a partner is, the more that person withdraws. They are uncomfortable with emotions. People might accuse you of being distant or closed off or maybe rigid or cold. They are prone to minimize people's feelings, emotions, and needs. They might be someone who prefers more casual hookups, casual relationships, one-night stands, um, or they seek people out who are independent, maybe people who can't move in, someone maybe who's like a pilot or a flight attendant who's always on the go and always on the run somewhere. Unfortunately, when someone has an avoidant attachment style, it was because the caregiver was never present um, and their emotions were always something that they had to deal with on their own. This is also could be from uh, a caregiver who was overly needy and the caregiver became the child and the child had to take care of that caregiver's needs before their own. So this person might be feeling like I'm, I'm done taking care of their people's needs. I don't want the burden of someone else's emotional baggage and may become dismissive because of that. About 23% of adults um, have dismissive attachment style. And then the last one is disorganized, fearful attachment style. This one is typically related to pretty severe emotional abuse or physical abuse as a child. We tend to see a lot of individuals who suffered at the hands of a caregiver having fearful or disorganized attachment. Intimate relationships are often confusing and unsettling for you. You swing between the pendulum of extreme love or extreme hate for a partner. There's really no middle ground. Very intense towards partners, very selfish and controlling individuals, very untrusting in relationships, and also themselves could become abusive partners. Exhibit antisocial behaviors. A lot of personality disorders have this fearful attachment style. They're more prone to substance abuse as well as a way to cope with their uh, swinging feelings. Um, While others crave security and safety in intimate relationships, most people with a fearful attachment feel they are unworthy of love and are actually afraid to get hurt again. So they tend to put up these walls or completely envelop a person and not let them go. People with this type of uh, attachment style display sequences of behaviors that they don't have goals that are readily available, contradictory behaviors, freezing in moments when they shouldn't be and fighting in moments when they shouldn't be. It's a pretty low level disorder. There's only about five or six percent of the population that actually identifies this attachment style. Those are the basics of the attachment styles. Amazing. Yeah. And hearing you share all of that, I could see so clearly Alex Nashton circa 2014 when you were sharing like every single trait of an anxious attachment style. And my immediate emotional reaction was like, thank God. (laughs) Like, gone to therapy for so many years and that I'm not functioning that way in relationships anymore. It's such a relief. And an interesting self-observation that I had was that there's still this little piece of me that like sympathizes with the poor little anxious attachment styles and paints this image in my mind of the avoidance as being like evil, like the antagonist. But When you look at it, it all comes from a place of fear or a place of anxiety. A place of loss. 
yeah, these aren't malicious or evil behaviors that people are participating in as adults. Like these are survival techniques. When you're a, a toddler, a two-year-old, we crave, our brains are wired for social interaction. Our brains need to be socialized. They need someone to talk to us. Otherwise, we there was an experiment Actually, it wasn't an experiment. It was actually very sad. Um, social services was called to a house. And this was in the 1970s. Um, and there was a girl who lived in, in the attic of this house. And she had been up there since she was an infant. And they just chained her to a bed and fed her and never spoke to her, never let her leave the house, never interacted with her other than to abuse her. And she didn't develop language skills. She didn't develop emotional regulation. She was very much still an infant at the age of 15 when they found her. And the researchers that or the social services took her and, and they took her to a lab to research her because she was like one of the only people we've ever seen who had this lack of complete socialization. And we wanted to they wanted to see if they could socialize her at that age. And and she died. Um, she died at the age of 21 by her own hand. And she could not function in society because of the lack of socialization and the lack of care that her caretakers gave to her. We have to have this to survive as human beings. And so when something gets broken down as a child and some sort of lack of care is is taking place, our brains grow around that. Our brains then begin to function in that way and create these new pathways that tell us these lies about relationships because this is all we know. This is how we were raised. And so no, these people aren't bad. They're not intentionally being anxious avoidant. They're not intentionally doing these uh, manipulating behaviors. This is what they know. And until we learn our attachment style and learn how to undo it or how to at least get closer to a secure attachment style, we're really on our own. Absolutely. Yeah. And what you shared about anxious attachment styles participating in guilt evoking behaviors or manipulative behaviors or controlling behaviors, that's something I could see in myself as well. And when I look back at my former self, the person who used to do that, it never came from a place of malice. It always came from a place of like, I can't be left. I can't be alone. Like I have to be a people pleaser, not have boundaries, ensure that this person loves me because if I don't, I'm not okay. And so for me, you know, we talked about this on what's your position, but for me, what that process of unlearning it, I think it was really twofold. Like first it was really learning how to be truly 100% okay by myself. And then taking that into the next relationship that I was in. So growing individually and then learning how to apply everything that I had learned by myself in a relationship moving forward. So I'm curious, what are some of the things that we can do to become increasingly secure for people who are in the realm of insecure, anxious, avoidant, disorganized? You probably have some secure attachment. You probably recognize some form of security. So focusing on the pieces of you that are secure um, and really making sure that you celebrate those, uh, making sure that you congratulate yourself and that you take time to recognize the good that you are doing. But then the first way to know is to know. So there's thousands of places that you can go and take an attachment style quiz. I typically like to do the rule of three where if I find a website, I want to make sure I find two. I want to I want to take the test three times. I want to make sure that I I know that I'm a Ravenclaw because I've taken the freaking test three times on three different sites. I get it. I'm not a Gryffindor. It's fine. I'm a Ravenclaw. It's fine. I've taken the attachment style quiz every year because I take it with my students and I always continuously fall on the anxious attachment style. But I know that I'm getting closer to secure attachment. I can I can see the markers move. So I celebrate those wins. Being reflective, being proactive. So knowing your attachment style and then recognizing that within yourself. Self-reflection is huge. Taking ownership of the behaviors that you're participating in that might be more on the side of anxious and less on the side of secure and seeing if there's something that you feel comfortable tackling on your own. Okay, yeah, you know what? I do send text messages that are a little passive aggressive and I could probably 
monitor that on my own and I don't need external help to do that. I can be a more assertive person. Setting boundaries. If you feel comfortable setting boundaries for yourself, that's another step that you can take on your own. And then recognizing if you are encroaching on other people's boundaries. Uh, That's a huge, huge part of having an insecure attachment style is not allowing other people to have boundaries. Maybe checking yourself there. Keep a journal maybe about your emotions. Um, Write down how you're feeling about specific interactions that you have with people. Pushing the pause button, maybe stopping when you are having an emotional moment, an emotional outburst or overwhelming emotions and naming them, recognizing them, and then seeing if that feels like a reaction that you should be having. Like if somebody stands you up and you feel angry and you feel frustrated and you feel disrespected. Those are emotions that I feel are valid when someone gets stood up. But if you feel like um, you'll never meet someone, I'm going to be up for alone forever. This was the one. I'm, that's a little over overreacting. And so maybe recognizing those places, pushing the pause button, taking a step back for a moment. That moment could be a day, could be an hour, could be a year. However long you need to step back and recognize these consistent patterns of behavior that you have. And then learning how to communicate. And that can be done in a myriad of ways. Um, You can read a book about communication. You can take a class on communication. Or my personal favorite, you can go to fucking therapy. Because therapy, we love therapy. Therapy is honestly your best chance at learning how to undo the cycle of abuse, the cycle of neglect, the cycle of inconsistencies that you had been exposed to as a child and as a teenager when we were engaging in our first relationships. And you can really unlearn these years of attachment style issues. And yes, I am talking to you, the person who constantly has is getting broken up with. I am talking to the person who can't seem to hold someone down. I'm talking to the person who I don't understand it. I'm such a nice person. I don't know why nobody wants to hang out with me. I don't know why no one wants to stick around. It's not me. It must be that I'm talking to you. Those are the people who need to recognize the attachment styles. They need to recognize their consistent patterns. And if something is happening to you over and over again, you are probably part of the issue. And you need to be able to have enough self-awareness to step back and say, what am I doing in this situation that requires a second look? And if you can't see it, you need to seek a therapist who can give you an objective outsider's perspective. It's called personal responsibility and really big advocate for that over here at Talk Nerdy to Me. We're really big fans of self-awareness and then personal responsibility and action. Personal responsibility is something I find is lacking in quite a few people in the world. Just a few, just to select a few. It's really frustrating. Like it's it's really frustrating to hear people, my friends even, like even on a very personal level, some of my friends who I don't know what it is about them. And it's like, you need to go inside <laughs> what's going on in here that you can learn from and take things from and undo in your brain. And it takes years, everyone. It, it It's not go to therapy. Yeah, yeah, I have secure attachment. I've been in therapy for nine years and I don't have secure attachment. I'm getting there. I'm unlearning all of these bad behaviors, but I still text my husband And if he doesn't text me back in an hour, I think he's dead. So, I mean, I don't know how long it's going to take to undo that one. Uh, So, you know, it's a work. You're a work in progress. Always. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned that, you know, in conversations with your friends, there may be some something to the effect of like, it must be them. It must not be me. In my experience as a recovering anxious attachment style, I'm always the problem. (laughs) always me. I'm always the one that's like, what can I do better? How do I become a better partner? How can I even now like I I've been in therapy for eight years now as well. Go us long time therapy participants therapy for life. I'm actually having my therapist come on talk nerdy to me. He's my next interview. Wait to hear that episode because I know how much you love that man. And I'm so excited to hear that episode. Really? I'm obsessed with him. And we're we're at a point in therapy now where I've kind of half-heartedly tried to quit a few times. So I'm like, I'm good. I don't need it anymore. And 
there's always just something that keeps me coming back just in terms of maintenance. Self-maintenance. Yeah. Like at, when I first started seeing him, it was like every single week mm-hmm. for years. Mm-hmm. And now I'm at a point where it's just once a month. I have my mental health maintenance just to make sure everything's okay. I'm staying on track. I'm moving in direction with my goals to become increasingly secure, among other things. And it's it's so, so important. But something I wanted to talk about and just get your opinion on, which doesn't have to be rooted in scientific evidence whatsoever, but do you think that people with an anxious attachment style are more likely to step up and work to become increasingly secure because they have the incentive and motivation to maintain closeness? Because for me, that was the thing that ultimately forced me to start working on myself more and more is because my anxious attachment style was so overbearing and so detrimental to my relationships and to my own mental health that I needed to learn how to become increasingly secure in order to take care of myself and be in relationships. But if someone is avoidant, if someone freaks out at closeness and proximity, they don't have that same internal incentive to become increasingly secure. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. I think that it would depend upon a couple of things. One, I think if an anxious attachment style individual is in a relationship with a secure attachment style individual and that secure person says, hey, your behaviors are unacceptable and these are my boundaries and you need to respect them or we aren't going to be together anymore. That atta- that anxious attachment style partner is going to say, oh, my God, my partner is going to leave if I don't fix these things. Let me go and work on these things. Whereas an individual who is dismissive or fearful, if their partner says, if you don't work on these things, we're through, that person might say, fine, bye. I don't care. That's great. See you later. Like, that's exactly what I wanted. And I, you just proved my point that I don't need you. So I think that it would depend on whether or not the individual was searching uh, for a way to be a better person. So if a dismissive attachment person was with a partner that they really loved and really cared for and the thought of losing them pushed them to a place where they would go get therapy or go get help, I would say, yeah. But I'd say that it's more likely going to be the anxious attachment style person um, who would go get the help just to please their partner and then stumble into their stumble into like an answer without even realizing it. Um, it's also uh, not necessarily scientifically proven, but in studies that have been done about people who have changed their attachment style, it is easier to go from anxious to secure than it is um, dismissive to secure or fearful to secure. It's actually really difficult for people who struggle with um, fearful avoid a fearful avoidance style um the people who were mentally physically abused as children that's really hard to to come to a secure place from there and that takes like lifelong therapy and it probably shouldn't be at the suggestion of a partner it should probably be something that you do the moment you realize something has happened or something is broken i find that the earlier you start therapy the more tools you have in your toolbox Um, And so if someone's waiting until they're like 50 years old to start therapy and they have a fearful attachment style, that's going to be a lot of work and they just need to be prepared for that. So how does this affect our sex lives? Let's get into the juicy part. So because individuals who have secure attachment style are secure within themselves, we definitely see um, the ability for them to bounce back from breakups and relationships at a much faster rate. People who are in a secure attachment style can have sex without strings attached more frequently. So casual hookups are something that is great for them. They don't mind the the laissez-faireness of it. They don't necessarily need to marry the person that they have sex with for the first time or for one time. Anxious attachment individuals tend to place emphasis more on their partners. So pleasure may not be something that an anxious attachment style individual is focused on as far as themselves. Um, so they tend to give more pleasure and be okay not receiving pleasure or be okay you know, I, oh, it's okay. I'll just, you know, I'll go down on you and you don't have to reciprocate. That's fine. That's fine. They might 
be the ones that have less orgasms than the rest of the attachment styles. Um, so make sure if you are an anxious attachment style person, you advocate for your pleasure. You know how to please yourself because these are really important things. And, and sometimes when you're in a relationship and you don't advocate for those things, you develop resentment. And resentment is one of the four horsemen of relationship apocalypse. Um, and resentment is awful. You don't want that in your relationship. And a lot of anxious attachment style people develop resentments because they give and give and give until they're worn down to the bone and they don't get anything back, especially if they saddle themselves with a dismissive partner. Dismissive individuals do find one night stands and casual sex to be much more fulfilling for them because they don't have to be stifled by all the emotions surrounding it. However, they are also more likely to not recognize when a relationship has formed. So if you are hooking up with someone regularly, and you find yourself saying, hey, what are we? And the person's like, what do you mean, what are we? We're just having sex. You're probably hanging out with someone who's dismissive, avoidant uh, attachment style. They also tend to not be in long-term relationships. So their sexual satisfaction can actually go down because individuals in long-term relationships report greater sexual satisfaction. No shit. The longer you're with someone, the more likely they are to make you orgasm and give you pleasure. So people with dismissive avoidant style tend to report lower sex satisfaction than people with secure attachment styles. Fascinating. So something you mentioned at the very beginning was that our attachment styles don't just relate to our romantic and sexual relationships, but they also play a role in every relationship in our life, from our friendships to our family relationships. And something I've been talking about with a few of my friends lately is attachment styles in the context of non-human or animal interactions. So, for example, we'll ask each other questions such as like, are you being avoidant with your finances? Are you being avoidant with your money right now? Are you being anxious in your relationship with food? Do you think that there's potential to look at every relationship in our lives, not just with other living beings in the context of attachment styles? I do. And I don't necessarily think that if you have an, an anxious attachment style with your relationships with people, you're going to have an anxious attachment style with money or with food. I think a lot of it has to do with how you were raised again. So if you were raised in a household that didn't have a lot of money, um, where money was tight or where you had to have a garage sale every weekend just so you could go to the grocery store. Um, you may notice that the way that you relate to concepts like money or food may reflect how you grew up. For example, I was not financially stable when I was a child. There was that's an actual thing my family did. We had garage sales every weekend so that we could buy groceries. Like that's a real thing. And I was so afraid my mom would put her debit card in at the grocery store and we would never know if it was going to go through or not. So still to this day, when I use a debit card, even though I know how much money I have in my bank account, like I'm fully aware of how much money is in there. And I know that this stick of gum is not going to break my bank or overdraw my account. I still get anxiety when when it's like, oh, the chip doesn't work. I'm like, I I swear there's money in there. Just let me swipe it instead. Oh, my God. Um, so I do think that we can apply our way we were raised to attachment styles to inanimate things. I did some research for you. And they actually have attachment styles based on money. So someone who has an anxious money attachment feels like they are always on top of their finances, hyper aware of what's in the bank, what charges this, how much did I tip, this is off by three pennies. Hyper awareness of this money, uh, this idea of money, though, can actually make you super stressed. And they actually tend to work really hard to make sure they always have money, uh, but they may not be working efficiently or effectively as they could. And somebody who has an anxious attachment style to money um, needs to sort of navigate how money is controlling their life and maybe get a better hold on it because they tend to be a bit obsessive about it. Someone who has a dismissive style for money can be fine, be living a very nomadic, very minimalistic life. They're very scrappy individuals. They are very thrifty people. But their challenge is that they are closed off to maybe opportunities that could benefit them uh, in financial ways. So maybe someone's like, oh, hey, I have a, an extra job you could pick up. And they're like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm just going to hang out with my shoes that have holes in them or I'm missing, you know, I only have three socks and none of them match. And 
you know, you, you're just very dismissive of money and it doesn't really matter to you. And you'd rather just sleep on a mattress on the floor than save up money to buy a bed frame, perhaps. Avoidant money attachment um, can show an ability to stay standing through most adverse financial circumstances. They avoid money problems. So they technically avoid all of their finances. So this can look like throwing your bills in the trash. This can look like never checking your bank account and just hoping that there's money in there. It's almost like the analogy of thinking that there's a monster under your bed. So you never look under your bed. It's probably not there, but you still should probably look under your bed to make sure that they're, you know, that everything is where it should be. Just because you dismiss or avoid the idea of money doesn't mean that money still doesn't play a role. Um, so anticipation is anxiety surrounding looking can be a sign of avoidant attachment to money. So fascinating. And I think that they can be so different because I've noticed in myself, like my pattern for relationships was very different than my relationship with money for most of my life, ranging from anxious in relationships to very avoidant with my finances. Oh, yeah. That is fascinating. Was there any other research that you stumbled across in terms of attachment styles and inanimate concepts? Inanimate concepts. Basically, because when we as human beings, when there isn't people present, we tend to anthropomorphize things or turn inanimate objects into people. So if you've ever... If you've ever like talked to your car, like encouraged your car to like go faster or like patted your car on the hood, like these are the type of attachment styles we have with inanimate objects, right? Or like when my husband got, he, my husband got in a car accident. It was not, I was, he, somebody was going 10 miles an hour, but it made it so that his car was not fixable. It was a total loss. And we, he had had that car our entire relationship and when we had to get everything out of it at the mechanic's office, I cried because I loved that car. It was such a great car. And I was so sad to see it go. And I really avoided looking for another car because I was like, fuck that. We're not going to find another car that's as good. And I don't want to do it. I don't want to. I made him go look for a new car. And I avoided getting a new car because I didn't want to talk about it. Um, so we have these attachments to things. And there are examples everywhere from cars to guns to food to sex Every, we're attached to things that aren't physical people. And because attachment is a bond and the bond is created in our brains, it's difficult to undo those bonds without learning new tools and new habits that you can form to have more secure relationships with not just our things, but with ourselves and with the people that we surround ourselves with. I mean, every single thing that's in existence is distilled down to a neural pathway in our brain. Like our relationships with everything are representational for us on a biological level. So if we are to make change in any of our external relationships, it has to start with being willing to be in awareness of what's happening in here, what is happening inside of ourselves. So awareness really is the first step in any regard, which again, you can foster through things like meditation, journaling, self-reflection, or the relationships in your life if you can trust them to be really objective and honest with the patterns that they are seeing in you. Be it a therapist or even a, like a coach or a really good friend will be able to identify things in you that you may have a hard time seeing yourself. As long as it's a safe person. Yes, absolutely. Not everybody is worthy of giving you reflections. Right. And if you're seeking that from other people in your life, it's probably a pretty good indicator that you're a little anxious and you don't trust yourself. And if you're seeking people who you know aren't necessarily the right people to answer you, like if you continuously ask the question and you don't like the response, so you go to someone else to get a different response and then you go to someone else to get a different response you're avoiding what people are saying. If some, if your dear friend says, yeah, I, I sort of feel like you get very clingy with the people that you start dating and I can see why they would leave so quickly because you love bomb them. If you don't like that answer, you might go to somebody and be like, oh, I'm going to change the way I say this. I'm going to rephrase how I'm saying it and maybe go to someone who doesn't know me as well so that I can get the answer I'm seeking, so that I can justify my behaviors. So making sure that you are seeking out people who will be honest with you and then actually taking that honest feedback and looking at it and really digesting it rather than just dismissing it as, well, they don't know. Yeah. Well, I think it requires in the first place a willingness to have uncomfortable conversations and to hear 
things that you may not like. You know, I think we live in a culture that is very comfortable. We have a very, very hard time with getting uncomfortable. And that is a requisite to changing anything and everything is the willingness to get uncomfortable and stretch yourself and push yourself and move beyond your comfort zone. We had a very good conversation about uncomfortable conversations. We did on Instagram. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes if you want to listen to our mildly uncomfortable conversation about uncomfortable conversations and the importance of having them. But I think that like, I even see this on social media and the way that social media is moving in terms of mental health, where now we have a flood of people who are going to therapy, who are learning about concepts like boundaries for the first time in their lives and who are using that in certain ways as a, a, a way to like deflect responsibility entirely of like, you can't say anything that triggers me because my boundary is that nobody gets to make me uncomfortable rather than taking responsibility for self and saying like, okay, this makes me uncomfortable. How do I neutralize this trigger so that the slightest piece of feedback doesn't set me off? Boundaries are your responsibility, by the way. Boundaries are no one else's responsibility. Boundaries are how you navigate the world and your boundaries are your internal set of uh, safety guards that that you place up. So you may have a boundary that no one gets to call you Ashley. I don't know. And if someone calls you Ashley and you've changed your name to Ashton and you no longer want to be called Ashley, then don't surround yourself with people who continuously call you by the wrong name. And if someone calls you by the wrong name, you say, hey, my name's actually Ashton. Um, and I would appreciate it if moving forward, you would be you'd be willing to call me Ashton. And if they violate that boundary, you remove that person from your life. You do not turn around and say, I'm triggered. I'm offended. You did this thing. Your boundaries are your responsibility. They are not anyone else's responsibility. And ensuring that your boundaries are being met are also your responsibility. So if you don't express to someone what your boundaries are, how the hell are they supposed to know? Amen to that. I also love the amalgamation of your first name and my last name together. I think that my boundary that I'm upholding now is that everybody has to call me Ashton. Every time we do anything, we are now Ashton. That's it. Welcome to What's Your Position? Talk Nerdy to Me with Ashton. <laughs> That's it. We've just created a monster. The best monster. The, the kind you're going to want to look under your bed for. You're going to want to cuddle with this monster. <laughs> Bring it on. All right, Ashley. So I know something else that you're super passionate about talking about and teaching on is positive sexuality. Is there anything you want to share about that before we start to wrap up our conversation today? God, when it comes to attachment styles and positive sexuality, no. But when it comes to just positive sexuality, hell yes. So I really feel like there is a severe lack of education and celebration of sexuality and sexual beings in this country. Um, I'm in America, by the way, for any listeners that are not, that's where I live. And I live in a great state that has a lot of open policies and a lot of protections for people and for minority groups. And so I'm very lucky um, that I live in a state that upholds my beliefs and my values. But positive sexuality is a pretty new concept in the world of psychology. And it's just really something where you embrace all sexualities, all genders. You embrace and understand that people have different views than you, that people have different lifestyles than you, people have different upbringings than you, and that individuals are going to express themselves um, outwardly and inwardly differently than you, and that you're okay with that. Uh, it is a very encompassing idea that we should all have consent. We should all have pleasure. We should all have education that's similar. We should all be able to express ourselves freely as long as no one is getting hurt and everything is consensual. I don't understand why people have such a hard time with this concept. It blows my mind. So individuals who embrace positive sexuality obviously are allies or themselves in the LGBTQIA plus community. Individuals who embrace positive sexuality want comprehensive sex education for all. Um, individuals who embrace positive sexuality want consent to be taught from kindergarten throughout college, body autonomy, biology, 
basic understanding of the human body, so why we have periods, um, how someone gets pregnant, just basic ideas and concepts about the human body and uh, what, what our rights are as people and as beings. Positive sexuality is just a really beautiful concept of embracing different ideas, embracing science um, and embracing biology and making sure that everyone has an equal opportunity to get health care, an equal opportunity to get education and the opportunity to love and experience pleasure in whatever way suits them. So you mentioned something earlier about how people who embrace positive sexuality are open and accepting of different views. And you also asked the question, I think rhetorically, of why would somebody not be interested in that? And I think that circles back to our conversation around uncomfortable conversations. You know, if something makes you uncomfortable, if someone else's beliefs make you uncomfortable, if someone else's views and the way that they want to express themselves and live their lives make you uncomfortable, that discomfort is your responsibility. And it's also not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to be in the presence of a conversation or a belief system that you don't understand that makes you feel a little a little disoriented inside. And that's how we grow. You know, when we're constantly surrounded by people that uphold the same beliefs as we do and the same judgments that we do, we just become enmeshed deeper and deeper in the same ideologies. And so I think the ability to embrace positive sexuality is also a willingness to get uncomfortable with yourself. Stagnation breeds stupidity. It's my new tagline. I just can't stand stagnation. And I think that there's a lot of individuals in the world who just want to stand still in these beliefs and these ideologies that are so outdated, so disruptive and so hurtful to so many people. Instead of just embracing the fact that we change our country changes, people change, language changes, ideas change, the things that we ex are willing to accept, the things that we consider deviant change. These are all social constructs and they are allowed to change. And we love that change. We love that embracing of these new ideas, these opening ups to, to different groups of people. And when someone is absolutely unwilling to even hear that someone else has a different ideology than them, I fear for that person's intellectual stability and I fear for their mental well-being because stagnation just absolutely ruins a person. I couldn't agree more. If we were having this conversation 200 years ago, we would be burned at the stake. Oh my God, we would already be dead. How did you learn how to use a mic, which who taught you the word amalgamation? Burned at the stake immediately. <laughs> yeah. So it's a it's a good thing that things are changing and people are challenging the things that make them feel uncomfortable. So so thank you for being willing to have this conversation with me today, Ashley. And thank you for being willing to talk nerdy to me. I hope I was nerdy enough. Was I nerdy enough? You are the perfect amount of nerdy. If someone wanted to learn more from you, which I highly recommend they do. Where can they learn more? So I am on Instagram and TikTok and Gmail, and they're all the same name. It's What's Your Position Podcast. Um, so you can find me there. You can follow me. I, I'm i much more active on Instagram than I am on TikTok. I'm really bad at TikTok. Um, but if you send me a message on Instagram, I will answer. I answer all my messages. I, I answer every message. People send me personal questions all the time. I do my best to answer or give you resources. Um, you can get What's Your Position podcast anywhere you get podcasts. I, last time I checked, we were on like 60 different podcast platforms. It's crazy. I didn't even add them. They just get added. Um, we have over 100 episodes. We are just about to start season four, which is very exciting. And then I am also part of the Bloom community. Bloom community is an online platform that connects you with people near you for events. It's kind of like... Um, um, Eventbrite meets Tinder. So it, it not only channel like tracks where you are locally and then sends you in like events that are near you, like a BDSM meetup or a kink luncheon, or, um, I just got an invitation today to be a part of a sex positive group in LA and they meet once a month. It also has events that are digital. So I just did one on purity culture and there was people from all over the world that attended this event that you can do on, on their zoom platform. But then it also is like a meetup. You can find hookups. You can find kink partners. You can find business um, associates. You can find friends. Um, so it's this like 
mix of events and dating and friendship. And it's all based around sex and sex positivity. And I do workshops for them. Um, and that will always be on my Instagram page. Like I said, I just did one on purity culture. And I'm going to do one, I think, on the construction of virginity coming up. I just have one more question. What is a kink luncheon? Is it like snacks and paddles? What happens at a kink luncheon? Not as exciting as you would think. Um, you don't get spanked for each sandwich, um, unfortunately. Basically, it's just a, a place for people to meet up who are interested in kink and maybe have not taken that step to go to a kink club or a sex club. And they just kind of want to talk to like-minded people. So they throw luncheons. They actually call them munches, which I think is super cute. And you are fully clothed and um, leather is completely optional, but... You get together and just sort of talk about what kink is to you and find other people who may have the same kinks as you or maybe different kinks than you and just open your mind a little bit. And it sort of puts everybody at ease to be eating tea sandwiches while talking about spanking. So they throw these luncheons all over the place. They're absolutely hilarious. I love them. I just have this vision in my head of an old school English tea party with the tiny little cups and saucers and then also leather clad. Someone has a ball gag and they have to remove the ball gag so they can feed them the sandwich and then put the ball gag back in right away. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. Did you eat all your sandwiches? Bend over. Oh, I'm crying. <laughs> okay, so all of that information, including... Bloom community and where you can find a kink luncheon near you is going to be in the show notes. <laughs> and I can't thank you enough for your time today, Ashley. It's been such a joy to be here with you. Any final closing words before we before we wrap it up? Sex is not a sin. Pleasure is for all. Stay safe, stay kind, and stay sexy. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears of more listeners like you by leaving a five-star review and subscribing on whatever platform you're listening on. When you share this episode on Instagram and tag me at Alex underscore Nashton for the month of June 2023, you'll be entered into a giveaway for the chance to win a 90-minute long coaching call with me. This giveaway is limited to residents of the U.S. and Canada. Each episode that you share and tag me in will lead to one entry, which means that you can share them all. This podcast baby is a labor of love for me. I'm not making any money on it. I just want to help get this life-changing and helpful information into as many brains as humanly possible. Last but not least, I want to thank Adam Russell for tirelessly supporting me physically and emotionally in the creation of this podcast. Adam is responsible for stringing together the epic intro and outro music, monitoring the sound quality, and is also the person I've called in the middle of the night, I can't even tell you how many times, when I've been freaking out about this podcast. Adam, you are a lifelong friend and a musical genius. I am so, so grateful to have you in my life, and I love you tremendously.